Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, for a Christmas special, we're talking about the fate of Rome, climate, disease and the end of an empire. A look at one of the most documented periods of ancient history and a look at how climate variation and pandemics profoundly altered the course of Roman history and played an important role in its eventual decline and fall. Our guest is Kyle Harper, author of The Fate of Rome, published by Princeton University Press in 2017, and Professor of Classics and Letters and Senior Vice President and Provost at the University of Oklahoma. Of course, this is a bit of a departure from our typical content, But I think it's really interesting, and reading the book it really struck me, how societies can be weakened by climate variation and pandemics, of which we've just gone through one, and what are some of the lessons we can take away from looking at history. As always, you can support the show by leaving us a positive review, and I hope you're enjoying the Christmas period, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, I'm excited for this episode, as, as we were just discussing, this is our, our Christmas special, uh, an uplifting episode for everyone to, uh, to you know, to, uh, to enjoy the season with. Not really that uplifting, of course, and, and what we're talking about is the, the fate of Rome, the fall of Rome, and the backdrop to that from your book, The Fate of Rome, Climate Disease and the End of an Empire. So there's, there's a bit of context here, okay, firstly, this is obviously a subject that has been picked over heavily by historians. And for the most part, those historians or the historians have been leaning into a welter of bad emperors, barbarians and weak institutions, etc, etc. And your book paints a really a new context onto that, which we're going to go into. And essentially, the two pieces of context I want to get up front is we're talking about here, climate variation, this isn't anthropogenic, or at least back in the Roman period. And the second, of course, is that this is a, a very well-documented period of history, and hence we can actually get the granularity to see how climate and disease impacted a civilization in its, you know, over its 800-year reign, so to speak. Can you just kick us off? When we talk about climate variation, that your book really goes into detail on this, which I found really useful. Can you just, you know, what are the sources of variation and what are we talking about? Sure. I mean, like you said, we're all at some level familiar with the the issue of anthropogenic or human-caused climate change that is mostly due to the emission of, of carbon dioxide and methane over the last 150 years or so that have fairly well understood effects on the, the physical climate, trapping heat, and so on. So there is, at the same time, now, in the past, always has been, natural sources of climate variability and climate change. These are caused by different uh, different forcing mechanisms. Some of the most important are the sun itself. So the sun doesn't sort of constantly emit the same amount of radiation. It actually is cyclical on different time scales. Probably the most familiar is the 11-year sunspot cycle, uh, but there are also longer decadal, centennial, millennial uh, kinds of solar changes 
there are also other mechanisms that come from the earth itself. The most important is probably volcanic eruptions that spew huge amounts of sulfur, among other things, into the, the atmosphere. When it reaches the stratosphere, it can aerosolize and make tiny little particles that float for a time and reflect solar radiation away from the surface of the earth and can cause short-term cooling. The climate system itself has some very complicated mechanisms of, of variability and change that are simply internal to the system. Probably one that's familiar to most of us is the El Nino-La Nina cycle that can really dramatically shape uh, our weather. Certainly here in Oklahoma, persistent La Nina is, is usually associated with drought and has contributed to the fact that it just never seems to rain. So the, the climate system is extremely complex and it's always undergoing variation and change on even deeper time scales. Of course, we, we all know that there were ice ages in the more distant past and, and so on. So the climate system is changing even without human human input. And I'll just put in a note. I do sometimes get asked, well, doesn't that mean that, that humans can't affect the climate or we shouldn't worry about anthropogenic climate change? That's a big issue. I'm happy to talk about it. But the short answer is no. We, we should still be very concerned and thoughtful about the, the importance of human-driven climate change, how significant and rapid it is. But to understand human-driven climate change has required us to, to understand natural climate change. And for historians like me, that's been a real unexpected benefit of trying to understand the climate system is that we have been given richer and richer records of the, the past climate, the paleoclimate. And I think as well in that narrative is how fundamental societal health, right, in the physical sense, but also in terms of the robustness of, of its institutions and so on, is impacted by even small variations in climate. And we've, we've previously discussed on this podcast, human-caused climate change is, A, as you said, very rapid, and it's also non-linear. And I think the story here is even these very small oscillations can, can have a big impact. But, okay, so let's start in the sort of the glorious period. So, you know, somewhere around 200 BC, a little bit later, the Romans kick Hannibal, you know, after his 10 years of peripatetic wanderings in, in Italy, out of Italy. They then go and get Carthage, Scipio, a couple, couple of years later, and you've got them conquering Greece. And kind of by 150 BC, you've got this superpower, albeit at the moment still an oligopoly, and the size of it and the scale of it starts to put pressure on those institutions. But all of this is in a period called the Roman climate optimum. Can you sort of give us the, the sort of the good period before we get into the bad period, so to speak? Right. Well, the, the last centuries before the Common Era are the period when Rome goes from being a kind of first a city-state and then a kind of minor power on the Italian peninsula to be the, the dominant power across the Mediterranean. And it's really an exceptionally vast empire that stretches over 5 million kilometers squared. It covers 30 degrees of, of both latitude and longitude. And uh, it's the only time the Mediterranean has been held by a unified empire. At its peak, it will have something like 60, 70, 75 million people, about one in every four human beings alive at the time, inside its territorial frontiers. And during the, the phase of the Roman Empire's expansion of Rome's conquest, Certainly, this is a period of, of really significant population growth. We also believe that this is a time of relative climate stability. So even the climate scientists who, who don't 
sort of come at the question from the, the historical side, call this period the Roman warm period or the Roman climate optimum. There's not a ton of agreement over exactly what that means or exactly when it was, but sort of broadly, the last few centuries before the Common Era into the first, second century of the Common Era, the climate is warm relative to Holocene levels. It is uh, apparently generally humid, so relatively high precipitation in the in the semi-arid Mediterranean. And it is above all relatively stable. So there are fewer sort of episodes of extreme climate anomalies in any direction for really a, a fairly long period of several centuries. So we still have lots to learn, but there's there's increasingly good evidence from things like tree ring records, marine cores that have annual layers that, that let us reconstruct temperature and precipitation that are starting to give us this this sense of what the what the climate was like in the Roman world. And it's a little more complicated than to say there's a good climate or a bad climate. We can certainly say it was stable and that the climate conditions in the Mediterranean seem to have been fairly conducive to, to agricultural productivity. And this is in a world where 80-90% of people are farmers. It's a pre-industrial world. It's a it's by our standards a relatively poor society that is that is always kind of on the the edge and depends very directly on the the harvest yields that depend on having weather that is suitable for for the productivity of mm. crops so uh, it's a it's a different world from ours but we have we have reasons to believe that the climate in this period was relatively favorable for the kind of society that the Romans lived in. And, and they also start to kind of industrialize at least the logistics of agriculture, right? Sort of in the late Republic, it's very important who controls Egypt. You know, you get these sort of incredible sort of industrialization of the importation of grain from Egypt to Rome. They said, you know, most people were living on, you know, a bit of a knife edge, but actually the, the, the civilization starts to move away from that with you know, significant grain storage, grain operations, you know, you, you, you do start to have sort of some robustness built into the system. I just kind of want to get, convey some sense of the scale of Rome and how sophisticated it was at this sort of peak golden period. Well, the Romans are, are famous for things like logistics and civil engineering and law, Roman institutions, for, for good reason. And we're, of course, talking about pre-modern standards but in a sense, really, the the level of complexity that this civilization achieves is is really extraordinary. And uh, as you mentioned, the the city of Rome itself, which we believe, and this is a very round number, but had a population something like a million people. It's the largest city in the world at that time. It's the largest city in the history of the world at that time. And simply keeping that population alone, fed was an extraordinary logistical and technological challenge. So the Romans feed the urban population, the center of the empire, with grain that is grown in Sicily, in North Africa, and increasingly, particularly after the period of the first emperor Augustus, Egypt, which is extremely productive in in wheat agriculture due to the the rich alluvial soils and the reliability of the Nile flood and so the romans have this enormous supply system with uh with a grain fleet with uh with storage facilities with production and distribution networks 
that allowed them to to build this huge population, and particularly in the urban center of the empire, and also probably are kind of tempting fate, so to speak, by by pushing the limits of of what's possible under the the conditions in which they live. There are other ways in which the Roman Empire achieves some improvements in productivity by uh, agricultural specialization, by improvements in certain technologies, particularly in, in agricultural processing. But I think in the broader perspective, too, we have to remember that this is still a pre-industrial society. They don't have modern wheat varietals that are very high yield. They don't have synthetic fertilizer. They don't have pesticides. They don't have me mechanized traction. So it's it's a very traditional kind of agriculture with much, much lower yields than, than what we're used to. Mm. So it makes it all the more impressive that with things like road systems and political organization, they're able to make a society on this scale and level of complexity work for so long. Yeah. And then you have this fascinating section in the book, which is kind of basically rich, but sick, right? You know, what they are doing is tempting fate, not only in sort of really pushing the boundaries of the population they can support, but also this is a mass concentration of people, a million people in Rome. You know, the world hadn't seen that before and neither had human pathogens, right? It's amazing that Romans were significantly shorter and much less healthy than the Dark Age successors who went back to a more agrarian, depopulated society. Can you talk to us about that? Right. And I mean, I think everything about this is, is just, to me, fascinating. So I'd start by saying that we're lucky to live in modern times, even though COVID has sort of knocked us off our balance. We still are fortunate to live in a world where most of us, most of the time, don't die of infectious diseases. But that's only been the case for the last 100, 150 years in the developed world. So when we're talking about pre-modern societies, we're talking always about societies where infectious diseases are rampant, where the level of health is much lower, and where life expectancies are much shorter, life is simply much more uncertain. But not all pre-industrial, pre-modern societies are equally unhealthy. There is a history of human health. There's change. And uh, over time, we know that, that there are important factors that drive change, like nutrition, but also the kind of society that that one lives in, the level of urbanization, the, the presence or absence of certain infectious diseases. And so one argument that I make is that the Roman Empire in some ways is a victim of its own success, rich but sick. That is that in comparative pre-industrial terms, the Romans managed to build a fairly complex economy with high levels of urbanism and even high levels of, of consumption by pre-industrial standards. At the same time, this also means that they live in a higher density population that is more interconnected. So towns and roads benefit humans, but they also benefit the transmission of infectious diseases. And I think that the, the burden of infectious disease was particularly high in certain times and, and places in the Roman world, and particularly in the biggest cities like Rome itself. And one index of this is that Romans do seem to, to be shorter. So there's some complexity in this kind of evidence, but there's lots of skeletons. So we're talking about a world where we don't have a lot of government records like we do for modern times. So we have to use other things like archaeology and particularly archaeology uh, of human skeletal remains. And it does seem to be a pattern that one thing that happens broadly in core regions of the Roman Empire is that in the phases of the Roman past that we think of as sort of the height of Roman 
imperialism and the, the height of Roman urbanism, consumption, trade, people do get shorter. And we don't exactly know why. That could be because they're malnourished. Uh, and it certainly could be because they're eating less protein. So maybe there's less meat. But I think that, that a big part of the equation is probably simply the infectious disease burden and that people are living in such dense, dirty conditions that they're constantly infected by gastrointestinal bugs, by respiratory infections, by malaria. And we know that societies with a very high burden of infectious disease make it difficult for people to achieve high stature. So the Romans are shorter than the people that came before them or the people that, say, inhabit Italy and Western Europe in the, the so-called Dark Ages, the early Middle Ages, when population densities are lower, when the towns are smaller, when there's more meat for people to eat. And it's an interesting index of very broad changes over time in the, the experience of past societies with health and disease. Mm. Yeah, I should apologize to the Dark Ages. I should know better than calling it that these days. But um... <laughs> yeah, you can you can offend historians. So you're on safe ground if you say de-urbanization, loss of literacy, um, those kinds of things. So for the, you know, it's Christmas time. Maybe some people are enjoying the movie Gladiator again, but it's kind of done a bit of a, a historical disservice. So you get, you know, the Republic ends, you know, I should know this better, but sort of in the 30s BC, Augustus, you know, has a very long reign, kind of keeps a fiction going that he's first among equals, primus inter pares. And you get, you get, you know, a succession of emperors, the sort of the narrative, at least the popular understanding is, then Marcus Aurelius, instead of living up to his high ideals and his meditations, passes the torch to Commodus, his son, who's a terrible emperor and everything starts falling apart. You get barbarian invasions, etc., etc. Actually, obviously, there had been far worse emperors than Commodus prior to that, the likes of Caligula. Nero wasn't very good. The book really talks about this period as sort of the first real shock to the um, the empire coming just before well in Marcus Aurelius's reign alongside Antoninus Pius we don't know quite what it is but there's a pandemic it's called the Antonine plague let's start there well let's go back to the movie Gladiator and recognize that that's a heck of a good movie and heck of a good movie love it Dan love it it's a good play Russell Crowe is great so <laughs> uh, so I don't I don't care if it's not totally historically accurate you know you want a, a good movie should be fun. But it is great that, that people sort of have this sense, even if it's from film sometimes, of the importance and, and style of different imperial reigns. And the, the second century generally has been regarded since Edward Gibbon, who you referred to, as the, the golden age of, of Rome. And there are ways in which that, that characterization still works. It's certainly what, what does he say? He says if there, there was any time to live in the world. The happiest yeah. era. Exactly. And this is the peak of populations, the peak of trade, the, the height of the, the cities, and so on and so forth. And of course, we as historians are constantly going to ask what, what causes historical change. And there's always various factors at play. And human factors are a big part of it. And you can have good emperors, you can have bad emperors, and that, that clearly matters. You can have barbarian invasions that, that fail, that succeed, that clearly matters. But I think we, we're learning that that those human factors are part of a matrix that needs to include as well environmental factors, both the the climate, the climate system that affects, for instance, agriculture, uh, but also that affects infectious disease. 
you mentioned a, a disease outbreak called the Antonine Plague. This is a pandemic, so that in itself is important and interesting. This is a multi-regional. It's a disease event that hits all continents of the old world. We know that it affects Africa, Asia, and Europe. And so it's this huge spatial disease outbreak that strikes in the first in the reign of Marcus Aurelius, who's generally considered a, a quote-unquote good emperor. He's, he's a kind of stabilizing figure, and this outbreak happens during his reign. It, of course, happens at the same time that the Romans are facing pressure along the, the northern Rhine and Danubian frontiers of, of the empire, and it, it clearly shakes the empire. This is a disease, a pandemic, that we don't know what caused it. We used to, we, the Roman historian community, used to mostly think that it was smallpox, which is a really nasty viral disease. We've now driven smallpox to extinction. It's the only infectious disease of humans that we've completely driven to extinction globally, thanks to vaccination. But it's one of the really, really nasty diseases. But we now know that it can't be quite that simple. Smallpox in its modern form is a is a caused by a lineage of the virus that isn't that ancient. It's still possible that there was uh, an ancestral form of smallpox, or it could have been some other disease entirely. So there's there's sort of a question mark around that. But the human witnesses that we have to the outbreak of this infectious disease event are really, I mean, really quite extraordinary. The the trauma of living through a mass disease event like this has has left a deep mark in the historical record. And people tell us that this was uh, simply a, a terrifying and traumatic experience to, to live through, that it caused mass death that really rattled the Roman Empire. So uh, for historians, that's very interesting. We're still trying to understand what are the links between climate and infectious disease, and then what are the links between the environmental shocks of, of pandemic disease, of climate-driven food crisis, and so on, and the, the fortunes of the Roman Empire. Because this is an empire that has to have food and it has to have soldiers. And if the crops fail, that causes disturbance in the, the political system. If the population declines, it makes it hard to, to recruit soldiers and to maintain the legionary strength uh, along the Roman frontier. So we're, we're trying to, to understand the, mm. the relationship between these really powerful environmental shocks and their, their consequences in human society. And this was, so this was 166, right, AD, just to get everyone on the same timeline around then is the pandemic. That's right. I mean, in the book, you talk about sort of 20% of the army or, you know, by what we can piece together being killed. It really weakened, I mean, so much so that recruitment, quality, caliber suffered absolutely devastating and again you know this is kind of always seen this period as the beginning of the end although the end takes another 150 plus years but you get a real weakening of the system those barbarians at the gate we've talked about this roman climate optimum it roughly ends around 150 so some 16 years before this event are those barbarians there because of climate change on the step putting sort of that tradition you know that pressure westwards on populations migrating and therefore coming up against the Romans? Well, it's, it's of course, one, hard to know. Two, it's complicated because <laughs> there, there are several things going on. And one I would say that's very important is simply that the kind of cultural complexity of the, the peoples that face Rome across the northern frontier 
is developing. So when you're in the time of Julius Caesar and Augustus, the Germanic peoples, if you'll forgive me, are, are pretty barbaric. I mean, you're talking about really quite simple societies with fairly low levels of political organization, fairly low levels of technological development. And over the course of a century or two, that pretty visibly changes in the archaeology, partly because of exchange with the Roman Empire. The Romans want to trade. They want the stuff that people across the frontier have, from from wood to, to metal to, to slaves. And that process drives changes in the the geopolitics of keeping the frontier because as the the germanic populations in northern europe get wealthier more sophisticated and more politically organized rome faces bigger and more organized military rivals across the frontier so part of it is just social development and state formation uh, across the frontier in the second century you're still rome is still mostly dealing with small-scale Germanic societies. You're not yet seeing huge migrations uh, across the, the steppe, although that becomes increasingly important. And there probably is already population migration exchange between sort of Northern and, and Eastern Europe in this period that we're starting to, to be able to, to understand better. But, but you combine the human factors of Rome's got bigger enemies to deal with, with the the environmental stresses and it's the combination of those influences that that ultimately pose a great challenge for roman society yeah and there are analogies here and i don't want to sort of make it scare anyone but with covid that i will come back to right essentially though you've got a real major disease event and this is clearly worse than covid but a major disease event a pandemic but ultimately rome is robust enough, resilient enough in its institutions, in its structures, in its agriculture, etc., in its army. They just about pull it back, and you just have to look at a list of emperors. You have a few, a bit of churn in the wake of Commodus's uh, assassination in a bathtub by a gladiator, but they kind of pull it back. You get the Severans. You know, Rome's still pretty much looking pretty good, and this is a real fascinating part of the book. Two forty-eight, right? They celebrate this this thousand-year. Games, Ludis Seculares, celebrating a thousand years of Rome from its traditional date of date of creation, and you've got Emperor Philip, who, and it's kind of it almost feels. I mean, you'd be forgiven for if you were, as you point out in the book, if you went to Rome at this point, still thinking it was at its zenith. But two things happen. Firstly, you then get another major pandemic, the plague of Cyprian, which I want to come on to. But by this time, and this is the important context. There's been a, they've had a rough 10 years from a climate variation standpoint. Can we sort of get back to climate and talk about kind of what's been going on really since the end of the Roman climate optimum and, you know, where we're at when we head, in, head into the 240s, 250s? Right. And I think, I think you've summarized it well in that the, the Antonine plague and the crisis under Marcus Aurelius and Commodus, the empire doesn't fall apart. I mean, it's, uh, it's really a story of sort of how the, the empire is able to, to absorb these shocks in a really fundamental way. That doesn't mean that, that there weren't really important and subtle long-term changes. It sort of ends a, a trajectory of, of growth and, and imperial hegemony, but, but doesn't cause the, the state to fall apart. You get a new dynasty uh, of emperors who are, who are relatively stable for, for a time. But in the mid-third century, 
you can you can say that something really fundamentally different happens and this is this is truly a, a crisis uh, in the sense of a, a moment of change a turning point a rupture and historians have long known that that this is a an important transitional period in the Roman Empire I would really date it from the 240s to the 270s and the climate system is part of it we don't we're still trying to understand exactly what what happens. We know that the climate gets suddenly colder, and probably there are at least changes in the the patterns of precipitation that that challenge agriculture. And simply, there's a lot of really rapid variability, so it's just wobbly, highly volatile, that causes breakdown in the the agricultural system and food supply. We know that there's a very severe food crisis in Egypt. Um, that probably has to do with the Nile River, which is controlled by uh, different parts of the global climate system, really the, the monsoon system that, that ultimately provides the, the waters that run off into the Nile. So we're, we're still piecing together all of the, the parts of the puzzle. But what we do, what we do know is that the, the thing, in a way that it hadn't before, really falls apart. So in contrast to the challenges of the late second century in the third century the thing the wheels come off the the monetary system completely breaks down and so for for almost a a millennium the world in the mediterranean has used a silver-based currency system for hundreds of years the roman money system has been has been mostly stable relative to what happens which is a, a total breakdown of the the monetary system which ruins the banks which ripples through the the system of trade in a world that was really interdependent and and run because complex networks could rely on things like a, a currency system that lets you borrow and invest that lets you trade across the the mediterranean sea that's wiped out the frontiers collapse so barbarians cross deep into Italy, into the Eastern Mediterranean, into what's now Greece. As far as Rome itself, uh, if you've been to Rome, you know that it's surrounded by the remains of this truly massive wall system built in the 270s and known as the Aurelian Walls. Rome was so dominant before that it was unwalled. They didn't need walls before this because Rome was so distant from the frontiers that the the concern about barbarians was was pushed out to the Rhine and the the Danube you don't have to worry about it in central italy if you're sitting there on the tiber river but now all of a sudden you do the roman empire breaks into to different pieces there's an empire in the northwest that we call the empire of the gauls there's an empire in the east uh, that's controlled by a dynasty in the city of palmyra there's the core roman emperor so the fabric really comes unwound. And uh, in some ways, it's more impressive that the, the Roman Empire back. is managed, <laughs> is managed <laughs> to be put back together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it could well have sort of been pulled apart and ended up as separate empires from that moment forward. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content 
for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. It's fascinating, though, because when you read your average Roman history, I feel like this period was never really highlighted in the magnitude of that collapse. I mean, yes, we know kind of Valerian gets killed by the Sassanids and so forth, and, you know, it's a rough patch, but this... You, you don't get that sense of the utter collapse that it was. I mean, you can imagine living through money disappearing, right? I mean, it's just, as you say, dramatic. And you, you certainly don't get this the talk about the climate backdrop to it and the plague of Cyprian. Just on that climate piece, you, you allude to it in the book that the kind of the current thinking is volcanic activity, right? Yeah, I mean, I we we the third century climate is still fairly obscured to us at least we don't have the kind of really high resolution records we would like and it actually looks to me like the the extreme volcanism now is is pretty clearly uh, in the the late 260s so I, I think that it, it's hard to see volcanism clearly right now from the evidence we have as the trigger so we're still trying to figure out what what is it that that contributes to the volatility of the third century because it does look like it's more volatile, like the the climate in Italy is colder and probably more arid. Certainly that's the evidence we have for North Africa. We seem to think that the the Nile is less dependable in the, the 240s. So it's a good mystery still, and, and there's a lot of it that we don't understand. You mentioned the Plague of Cyprian, which I should have referred to as well. It's a very clearly a pandemic. The first one since the the Antonine Plague, where we have very good evidence in a very poorly documented generation of Roman history, we have really stunningly good evidence from a number of eyewitnesses. I think I found seven different eyewitness testimonies uh, from this period that described the Plague of Cyprian, which is a massive disease outbreak that strikes again in all parts of the Roman Empire. We don't know exactly how many people died, but it, it's certainly described to us as a as one of the major factors in this multifaceted political, military, monetary, agricultural meltdown that the Roman Empire has. So I love I love uh, thinking of it as a, a rough patch versus just a total breakdown uh, this this is more of a of a breakdown than a than a rough patch yeah and and we're going to come on to this sort of the this interplay because it comes up in sort of the plague of justinian like a weakened population stressed by d- food deprivation etc becomes much more vulnerable to these plague events or turns you know turns local diseases into pandemics because the population is so stressed Okay, so they, you know, you get a whole series of emperors. It is a really rough patch. I mean, it's it's astonishing the the collapse. And as you say, it's kind of you say in the book, it's amazing that they pulled it back. I mean, there's a really good chance we would all just be saying that the Roman Empire was on its thousandth birthday was done. It was over, and it was replaced by what happened in the five hundreds. You know, a, a balkanization of different elements. But you kind of get these Danubian warlords. Really, you know, these are most often army professionals from that region of the Danube, Pannonia, etc., and with the likes of Diocletian, etc., who basically piece it all back together, right? And the backdrop to that is it turns out that the, the 4th century is a pretty good time again in general, and it seems to be that you kind of, the climate calms down a little. Is that a, is, well, A, can you tell us the history of this period and how they did pull it back and, and give us some sense of, was there, a, you know, the, the the climate ceased to vary so much? Yeah, I mean that's 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 all very well said. The Roman Empire 
could have and and should have and would have fallen apart in the middle of the third century, and maybe that would have been the the, the more predictable outcome in some ways because there's always these sort of centrifugal tendencies in building these giant empires where you still have these local societies with powerful local elites who often have have these incentives to to pull away from the the central state and that started to happen uh, and it is ultimately what happens uh, later but in this instance you have a military officer corps mostly from this tiny little region in in the Balkans from the Danubian frontier who are seem to be this kind of class of tough hardened often cavalry officers who've been on the front lines and managed to to put the thing back together and they call it restoring the Roman Empire but it is in some ways a very different certainly a different kind of emperor uh, instead of being a kind of Mediterranean wealthy senatorial elite like you'd had since the very beginning the empire's run by these cavalry officer tough guys who who kind of know the the taste of battle and uh, are very culturally Roman, even though they they come from a province of the Roman Empire, and are really interestingly less connected to Rome itself. You know, people like Diocletian, who's one of the the important emperors uh, in this in this story, very rarely actually go to Rome. Um, these are guys who yeah, they, get to they, Rome they never, every decade bothered, or two. I mean, they're too too busy. Yeah, but they put the, the empire back together, and it endures as a centralized imperial system for well over uh, another century. And the fourth century really is a kind of phase of stabilization and renewed demographic growth, expansion of trade, markets, financial systems. And so the this is why... Uh, most of the historians who now work in this period are, are sort of averse to the the older language of decline, which for one can be sound judgmental. At least some of us would prefer to to still think in terms objectively of things like demographic retraction, deurbanization, simplification, fragmentation. But another reason why decline is sort of a a, a difficult word is that it sort of implies that there was a kind of non-stop trajectory from the height of the empire in the second century to its ultimate dissolution, and that just doesn't capture the 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 much richer story in which there are phases of of expansion, contraction, growth, then dissolution, and the fourth century really is not a period of decline. The Roman Empire is, of course, still facing geopolitical, fiscal, demographic challenges. But on the whole, the the unified Roman Empire still functions quite well in its terms across this this period of the fourth century. Mm. And it's also, I mean, in some ways, it's more sophisticated, right? You now have a a real civil civil service system alongside the army. And that old senatorial class has essentially been replaced in the governmental institutions. It looks very different, right? But, but can you just give us some sense of, was this a function, at least in part, of the climate sort of stabilizing during this period? At least that's what, sort of what I took from the book, that you did actually have a period, okay, it's, it's settled at a different type of climate to what the, the, the early Romans enjoyed with, you know, with warm weather and, and, and lots of water to, to something else, but actually at least it's stable. I think it's, it's part of the story. It's certainly more stable than it had been 
between the late second and late third century and much more stable than it would be again uh, in the, the later periods of, of late antiquity. There's still, of course, some variation in the climate, but there's really not long-term trends that are pronounced in one way or another in most of the temperature records. Uh, precipitation's always more more local and more variegated. But I do think that that at least part of the story in this sort of phase, the cycle of recovery, is the absence of, of really massive climate trends or climate shocks. And certainly one of the things that's interesting about the, say, the long fourth century is there's no evidence for really, really massive pandemic outbreaks. And this is important because the, the fourth century is by far the the most richly documented period of classical antiquity. I mean, from from Homer to the to the final fall of the Roman Empire, we actually have more material from the fourth century than than any other. And the reason for that is worth mentioning. It's because this is the, the century when the majority of the population becomes Christian, when the Roman emperors convert to Christianity. And so you have this extraordinary couple of generations where you have this very important series of, of church leaders, the church fathers, like the Cappadocians, Gregory of Nyssa, ultimately in the West, Ambrose of Milan, Augustine of Hippo, and their doctrinal works, their letters, their sermons get preserved en masse. And so it's it's really an exceptionally richly documented phase of ancient history. And we have a certain level of confidence in at least the big picture of knowing what's going on. We have a ton of legal and administrative records relative to other periods of antiquity from this from this phase. So what's sort of noticeable is the the dog that didn't bark, uh, mm. the the absence of these kind of catastrophic descriptions of, of disease outbreaks. There are a few shorter and more regional disease outbreaks in the fourth century, which would be surprising if there weren't. But it's interesting that the way you characterize it, I think, is is generally right, that this is a period where the kind of absence of these shocks is notable in letting the the Roman system get its feet back under it. You know, for the the history part here. So this is, if I'm right, you've kind of got Diocletian starts this kind of splits splits the empire into east and west with Constantine and successors in Constantinople, now Istanbul. You have this great long fourth century. It's roughly okay, and then it all starts to go a bit pear shaped. Excuse the vernacular. You know, of a couple of decades later, sort of what starts happening at that traditional date of the fall of Rome, when you know it gets sacked by Alaric and so forth. Right. I mean, it's a classic question: When does does the Roman Empire end? There's not a there's not a right answer. We we know the 1066 and all that style uh, of dates. 410, Rome is sacked. But just as important are the events in the mid fifth century when Rome really loses control of North Africa. And so the Mediterranean unity is broken. 476, there ceases to be a, an emperor in the West. But even that doesn't really necessarily represent the end. The Ostrogoths are still very much ruling in the Roman style and, and in deference to the Roman emperor in Constantinople. And then in the 6th century, the capital in Constantinople is intent and quite successful in putting much of the Roman Empire back together. So they reconquered North Africa and reconquer Italy. So in some ways, to me, the most meaningful, there's not one answer, but the most meaningful end of the Roman Empire 
really in some ways is the seventh century when the the Arabic invaders managed to take control of some of the most important parts of the Roman Empire, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, North Africa, um, ultimately parts of Spain. And what's left of Rome is is really a tiny little rump state around the Aegean, parts of the Balkans, and, and just a few cities in Italy. So th- there's not a right or wrong answer, but I do think it's it's meaningful to say that the Roman Empire, in these kind of fits and starts, ceases to exist in, in the sense that we understand it to be the Roman Empire. But as you say, the Roman Empire keeps going. The, the Byzantines, if we can call them that, call themselves the Romans and manage to, to hold on and have some kind of political presence right down to the to the 15th century. But the 6th century is, I think, increasingly a, a very compelling candidate for when we can think of uh, the kind of ultimate dissolution of the Roman Empire, a process that unfolds between the, the 530s, 540s, and ultimately the, the dismemberment of the, the surviving empire by the Islamic Caliphate in the, the 630s, 640s. Yeah, and the Arab conquest of the Near East, North Africa, as we'll discover, is increasingly looking like just walking into empty space, right? They also defeat the Sassanids. Um, you know, it's, right. it's, it, this is a world that has been dramatically depopulated and devastated by the confluence of this time very starkly dramatic climate change variation for the net for the worse and then suddenly we get bubonic plague turning up and so because let's start with justinian so you talk about in the book about how he's you know he's quite well known for you know lots of things including his what is what his wife did with geese you know allegedly google that but he, <laughs> no he, comment. Uh, <laughs> yeah no comment but he, he does a lot of infrastructure building and it turns out that this really you know he's building aqueducts basically trying to manage a changing climate so can you take us to the the 540s the 530s i mean what starts to then happen to, to the to the climate in the mediterranean world well this to me is is the most interesting chapter and i think we can sort of stop hemming and hawing about things being too complicated and uh, being a lot that we don't know this is the period when clearly environmental shocks uh, become overwhelmingly powerful both on the climate front and on the the infectious disease front and it's fascinating as a historian that even since my book that you that you were talking about the fate of rome came out in 2017 which of course really means it's written in 2014 15 16 the last few years have been really exciting we keep learning new things and everything continues to underscore what an utterly catastrophic moment this was in in the history of ancient societies and it is both the climate as well as the disease environment that provide really dramatic shocks and so it starts with in in order of time with the climate we knew from historical records that the year 536 something happened the sun disappeared for 18 months that's weird we now know is at least partly caused by volcanic eruption and we now know that it wasn't the only volcanic eruption that about four or five years later another even bigger volcanic eruption and then five six years later another volcanic eruption and this in turn triggers extreme and rapid cooling so 
tree ring series from the Alps and from the Altai Mountains in Central Asia that can be used to reconstruct past temperature at a very high degree of chronological resolution now tell us that the 540s are the coldest decade in these two regions and this one in, in the Altai it's the coldest in the Alps it's the second coldest decade in the last 2000 years so it's it's very significant short-term abrupt cooling that must have caused crisis in human societies. We know that there were food shortages, famine. It probably contributes to migration, other kinds of environmental and ecological change. This is an enormous, very rapid climate shock to these societies. To make matters worse, in fact, (laughs) much, much worse, (laughs) the worst enemy that humans have ever known shows up in 541. It's a bacterium that's known by the species name Yersinia pestis. It is responsible for the disease known as the plague or bubonic plague. This is the same germ that is responsible for the medieval Black Death, which of course is is rightly reputed to be the the worst known disease outbreak in the historical record that holds up to, to all scrutiny. We now know that this same pathogen shows up on Roman shores in 541, and we have very vivid eyewitness testimony to its diffusion across the Roman world, to Alexandria, to the thriving cities of the Near East, to the capital in Constantinople, where it kills such an enormous part of the population that they're struggling simply to bury the bodies. They build enormous trenches right outside the the town gates. Those fill up and the emperor has to then orchestrate a kind of massive corpse removal operation in which he uses barges, so the giant shipping freighters, to, to carry corpses across the straits and to throw them into to kind of military buildings, to stack them up. It is described in the most lurid, gruesome terms. We know that the disease spreads throughout the, the Western Mediterranean, where we don't have the same kind of detailed eyewitness uh, accounts. This is an area where we've learned a lot, even in the last few years, thanks to the amazing advances in the ability to sequence DNA from archaeological samples like skeletal remains and recover the DNA, not just of human beings, but in some cases of the, the microbes that killed them. And we now know with with absolute certainty that the causative agent of the Justinianic plague is Yersinia pestis. We're also getting a richer and richer picture of just how far and wide this disease spread because the pathogen's DNA has been recovered from, for instance, some very off-the-beaten-path rural cemeteries in the Western European countries, Western territories that suggest that this pandemic really did spread far and wide. So these these different kinds of, of evidence from the really lurid human descriptions of the struggle to bury the bodies to the most cutting edge scientific DNA analysis are helping us piece together a picture uh, of what happened. And it, it does remind us of nothing so much as the Black Death, which is much more richly attested because it's nearer to us in time and there are more records from the 14th century. But we we really do think that the 
the plague that happens in the 540s is in some ways a, a parallel for the, the late medieval pandemic. And certainly it is a hugely consequential moment in the fortunes of the late Roman Empire. There are other um, analogies there as well, or, or similarities, in the sense that right before the Black Death came, the, the previous generation, so that's what, 13, 1347, in the, in the 1320s, or the early part of that century, you have a very similar dramatic cooling, don't we? And, and, and a sort of an ice age, a mini ice age hit, and you have crop failures and, and historic flooding across northern Europe. It's a similarly damaged population that the plague falls on, you know, um, all those years later. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. There are, there are differences, but there are, there are really, in some ways, spooky parallels. It's an amazing disease. I've, I've written another book more recently that's a global history of infectious disease, partly because I wanted to understand how the, the Roman chapters fit into to a bigger story. And having worked on this, this bigger history and tried to think about the, the importance of infectious diseases in the human past, plague is still, the bubonic plague is still just a mind-boggling disease. And both the the first pandemic that starts in the middle of the sixth century and lasts for about two centuries, and the the second pandemic that starts in the 14th century and lasts for three, four centuries in some places, is the most mind-boggling disease in human history. It's an amazing, uh, uh, really an amazing disease that kind of never ceases to to baffle and amaze and challenge us as, as historians. If it were to, we would have another serious amplification. It could be stopped by antibiotics now, right? As it is a bacteria. Yes, there, that's that's the silver lining. Plague is still out there. We can't get rid of it because it's an animal disease. Um, and that's a longer story, but that's one of the things that makes it kind of so vicious and weird. If you do, uh, you know, for some reason, eat a eat a marmot or a uh, a groundhog and happen to catch a, a bout of plague, just uh, get get to the doctor and get your antibiotics going as quickly as possible. You'll, you'll probably be okay. I wouldn't recommend it. But viral diseases are, are a little bit of a, a different kind of threat for us just because of the, the general effectiveness of antibiotics. So be grateful that, um, that we probably won't have a, a fourth pandemic of bubonic plague. Touch wood. Okay, so that kind of, we've come to the end of the story in reality. And I, I think what's sort of fascinating, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm excited to read that next book. And I think there are, you, know, you can see sort of the various Egyptian dynasties fell eerily coincident with Nile flood failures. What, what I think find fascinating is kind of this interplay of actually how foundational climate variation is to, like I said at the start, to civilizations and how weakening it can be when you have even small oscillations. Goodness knows what would happen today were, you know, we'd have a series of mega volcanoes go off and, and have 18 months without sunlight. It would be devastating. You then can get the knockout blow from a disease. And we've just had a pandemic, right? We've all lived through a pandemic. And it has, it has weakened society. But analogous to the 150s, it's a pretty robust civilization spread across the world. What would happen over the next 30 years, as, and I don't want to get too gloomy on Christmas time, but as we start to go through climate variation, significant climate variation, which is really going to weaken institutions, I think we're already seeing some of that in the more impacted areas, is not going to take too much to start tipping, tipping things in a really negative way. Well, I think that that's all exactly right. And we could go on for a long time about the 
the important differences in the kind of society that we live in, where we have modern science, we have modern systems of energy, we have much more resilience in our systems of agriculture and health. We have more, way more tools at our disposal. So we can feel grateful that we have those, but I think it would also be hubris to think that, that those completely insulate us from these very powerful forces that, that have shaped human societies in the past. That's why it's important to, to learn from these past episodes uh, and to, to recognize the really important role that the environment plays in human affairs, uh, that it, that it, the ways that it shapes human economies, human politics, human conflicts. Uh, and as we, of course, in future decades, we'll, we'll face challenges around climate change and very likely future pandemic diseases this deeper record can can give us richer resources to think about the risks that, that we face collectively and ways to, to buffer ourselves uh, against environmental challenges and the kinds of social tensions and social conflicts that, that tend to arise out of those challenges. Mm. And it also takes some of the blame off the leaders at the time, right, as well, in a sense. As I said at the start, you kind of have this traditional history of the decline of Rome was very much one of talking about good and bad emperors, barbarian invasions, and sort of growing militarization, weaker institutions, etc. But in reality, you know, they, those had, well, they, they certainly had an impact, but less of an impact compared to the big macro trends that were going on, that even the greatest emperors, probably, you know, Augustus himself would have really struggled in the plague of Justinian at that period, like, however strong you are as a as a leader and emperor, some of these forces are almost uncontainable. I, I think that's very well said. Of course, human factors matter. Humans have agency. The the strength of our economies, the the strength of our culture, of our communities, the the quality of leadership has a huge influence over human affairs. But that's not, of course, in any way to to say that environmental forces of nature, these huge abstract structural issues don't also really profoundly shape our fate. And so uh, I think it can, can actually improve our collective community response and leadership to, to recognize that and to grapple with it uh, in an honest way. So leadership matters, but so, so too does the, the blind force of, of the environment and the blind force of pathogen evolution that will continue to throw wild cards at us i'm very grateful for you coming on but it is a phenomenal book the fate of rome climate disease and the end of an empire published as you say 2017 published by princeton university press and kyle i mean i i cannot recommend the book highly enough and i and i really i really enjoyed the discussion thanks that's very kind of you i've enjoyed it greatly myself thank you so much for having me thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.